if you're ever out about in the shops, I wonder how you react or possibly picking children up from school. I wonder how you feel or what your feelings are, or how you react when you see this here symbol or this sign in front of you. And you see a picture reminding you that there's CCTV cameras in operation. Do they make you feel safe and secure? Or does it make you feel like you're being watched and monitored? Here's a statistic for you to think of this morning. It's believed there are 4.2 million cameras, CCTV cameras, in the UK. Or to put it in a way which might be more understandable for us to think of, there is one camera for every 14 of us. The cameras can make you feel protected if a crime is committed or if a crime is going on, there's a good chance that it's going to be caught on camera. So it can make each one of us feel protected. And yet, we can also feel that there's something sinister. Perhaps you might feel, am I being watched all the time? Who is watching me? And do they do anything with the footage that they have? It can feel a little bit sinister knowing that you're being watched, almost like Big Brother. How a person reads Psalm 139 depends on their attitude to God. As a Christian, I read Psalm 139 and I feel comforted that God knows me so well. Perhaps a non-Christian could read this psalm and perhaps they can feel alarmed that there's someone who sees and knows their every thoughts and their every action. So there's three things I want to focus on this morning as we look at this psalm together. And the first one is that God knows us deeply. When we were reading Psalm 139, Possibly there was one word that jumped out at you, and it was the word knows. The word knows appears throughout the psalm. It appears in verses 1 and 2 and 4 and 6 and 23. We could say that the word knows is woven throughout the entire psalm. And if I asked you, I forgot to get you to think of this when I was reading Psalm 139, I was to ask you to sum it up in one word, there's a good chance that the word knows is possibly the one that you would have thought of. So in verse 1 and 2, it says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. In verse 4, Bible tells us that before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. In verse 6, it says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And in verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your words are wonderful. I know that full well. And finally, in verse 23, it says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. The word know is used in those six different verses. 
I know the Queen. I'm not name-dropping. I promise I'm not. But I know her childhood nickname. I know her family tree. I know her age. I know the year she became the Queen. But does she know me? In the UK alone, there are almost 67 million people living in the United Kingdom. I am one of those 67 million. The Queen, as wonderful as she may be, she doesn't know me. How could she possibly know me? One out of 67 million people. And yet the Bible tells me that God knows me. I can say that with great certainty. I'm not just one in 67 million to him, or even one in 7.53 billion of the world's population. How can I stand here this morning and say that with conviction? How can I be sure of this? How can I be confident that the God knows me, that God knows me out of all the billions that are living on planet Earth? And I can because Psalm 139 tells me. The word searched is used in verse 1. And it gives us a clue about how deeply God knows us. It gives the thought of someone who has been closely examined or looked at. If I pulled out of my pocket an object and held it up in front of you and held it there for five seconds, and if I put it back in my pocket and got you to go to a stranger, you could probably, and say to him, can you give that stranger, or that person you've never met, can you describe that object that you've only seen for five minutes? I would imagine you would give a very general description of that object. You could probably tell the size of it. You could probably remember the color of it. But if I gave the same object to each one of you and said to you, look at that really closely for five minutes, look at it closely, look at it deeply, and go and tell it to a stranger, could describe the object in much greater ways. You could describe it in much more intricate ways. You could probably tell the size, definitely the color, yes. You could also tell the texture of the object. You could also pick out any unusual features in the object. God knows us the same way. He has taken the time to search us, to examine us, to look at us. He hasn't just taken a quick glance at something and forgotten about us a few seconds later. No, God knows each one of us so deeply. Only does he know us so deeply, he takes attention to know all the mundane little details of our lives. Can you think of an occasion where a loved one has come home from work, possibly a husband or possibly a wife or possibly one of your children? And you ask a question, I encourage you to ask this question, how was your day, you might ask. And usually, certainly when I do this, when Jane comes home from work, she tells me all the major things that have happened in her day at work. She tells me about some of her colleagues, possibly some of the people she's looking after, some of the people that she's met. Jane doesn't usually come home and tell me, well, do you know what, I sat down on my desk at about five past nine, she didn't tell me how milky her tea was at break time. She didn't tell me what time she arises from her desk. I mean, to be blunt, who really cares about those little details? And yet God cares about those little details. In verse 2, David writes that God knows when he stands up 
and when he sits down. Imagine knowing someone so deeply that you know something so boring and so mundane about their life. So I'd encourage you this morning, God cares for each one of you, but it's not just the big and important things that our God cares about in your daily routine, but it's also the small little mundane things that you do. And we also know from this psalm that God knows us before we do something. He knows our words even before we say them. Here's something for us to think on. God knows what your 125th word will be on Tuesday. He knows what word you will use to build up and encourage a friend. And also he knows a word that you might use in anger towards a loved one. He knows each one of us so deeply. God knows us deeply. He cares for us deeply. As you read Psalm 139, there can be a sense of peace in the words. In verses 7 to 10, David writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Our Heavenly Father doesn't do long distance relationships when it comes to his people. We could go to the furthest end of the earth and God is there. We could go down into the depths of the earth and God is there. And we could go high up into the atmosphere and God is there as well. And for us as Christians here this morning, there is deep comfort, is there not, in hearing these words, these verses, that we can't go away from God. No matter what we do, he is still there for us. And so the Bible records instances of men who tried to run from God. So the one most obvious is Jonah. He was given a specific job by God to do. He was told to go and warn the people of Nineveh about their godless lives. And what did Jonah do? He turned heel and he ran in the opposite way. He ran in the opposite way he was told to. But Jonah couldn't run from God as if he could. A spell in the belly of a fish was his result. But thankfully there was redemption. God wouldn't and couldn't let Jonah run from him. We can also think of the New Testament or we can think of Saul. He was running. He wasn't running in a literal sense. But he was living a hostile and contrary way to the word of Jesus. He was filled with violent vengeance against God's people. He was in the crowd as Stephen was stoned to death. And after that instant, he was on his way to Damascus. He was wanting to continue to throw Christians into jail, but not so fast. God interrupted. He intervened and he brought Paul or Saul literally to his knees, blinded by a light which was brighter than the noonday sun. Paul couldn't run from God. None of us can run from him. Where could we go if we want to run from God? Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with God. 
I would encourage you not to hide from God or to run from him or to ignore him. You simply can't. I don't know, you might have reasons why you're resisting God. I don't know what those reasons are. But I do know that God wants you. And why do I know this? Because he loves you. What a precious thought that is to hear this morning. That this God, who Psalm 139 says, his works are wonderful. This God loves you. So please come to him and run or hide no longer. And there's one other little verse to share with you. I consider it a little gem. There are other verses in this psalm. For example, I am fearfully and wonderfully made that I consider quite well known. And yet I consider this little verse that I'm going to share with you, I call it a little gem that you have to search for carefully to find it. It says, when I awake, I am still with you. And I love this little part so much. And why do I love it so much? Because my God loves me so much that when I'm at my most vulnerable and helpless and indeed my most boring, he holds on to me. I fall asleep and I can have assurance that I am with God and when I awaken, I am still with him. He has held on to me as I sleep. How wonderful is that to think of when we're falling asleep this evening that God holds on to you. When I was preparing uh, this talk, this sermon, I started thinking back to the early days of fatherhood for me. I had a real fear when I put Molly into her bed, what would happen to her? I was far too tired to stay up and watch over her. And I remember just watching this little helpless baby girl drifting off to sleep. And I was always struck with fear of what would happen to her when I was asleep. I couldn't look after her. It didn't happen all the time, I assure you, I encourage you. But it certainly was a strong feeling, especially in her first few months. And yet what could help me rest easy was because my God held on to her. And where better for a daddy to leave his daughter than the hands of the Almighty. And so when we read Psalm 139, we can think who holds on to us as we sleep. And Psalm 139 encourages us to know that God does, that God holds on to us. And finally, God knows us deeply, he cares for us deeply, and he challenges us deeply. This is possibly the hardest part of Psalm 139. Have you ever gone in to faith mission and looked at the gifts section? Perhaps there's a mugs, or perhaps you can see one on the screen in front of you, a t-shirt, and they always have a verse of scripture. On it. Perhaps you can think of social media, perhaps if you're on Facebook, and you'll think of a time when a friend has put a memory verse onto social media for people to read. Or perhaps can you think of a Sunday school lesson, a memory verse you might have learned then? And this is a bit of a hint. Think of the Holiday Bible Club you might have attended. Ours is coming soon at the end of July. And usually when we're teaching these memory verses, they're quite specific in the verses that we use. The verses, the verse there on the t-shirt about being fearfully and wonderfully made, these verses are usually encouraging and uplifting. And to that I say amen. 
the Bible has definitely got encouraging and uplifting verses. But have you ever seen a mug that has these verses on it or a t-shirt or a social media post? It says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. I was preparing this PowerPoint yesterday, and I typed into Google some of the verses that I would be showing you this morning, and some of the lovely ones which came just as I clicked. Here we go, verse 1 and 2. There's literally dozens something like this and I typed into Google this verse that verses I've just read with you and I could say there's six at the most or think about going into faith mission many times have you ever seen a cup or a mug that says those words that I've just read to you how do we deal with these verses the words are raw and brutal they seem out of kilter with the rest of the psalm. If you read the first 18 verses again, it's very uplifting, it's very encouraging. It's very wonderful to know that God knows us so very deeply and cares for us so very deeply. And then you come to verse 19, and it's just like a bolt out of the blue. Where did these words come from? They're not the sort of uplifting words that a friend is likely to share on social media. So what do we do with these words? Do we ignore them? Do we pretend that these words aren't there? Or do we hope that none of our non-Christian friends will read them because they're quite awkward? And how will we answer their questions on them? So I would take three approaches for them. These are challenging words. And the first approach that I would take to these words is I'm reminded of the words of the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great preacher in the 50s and the 60s in England. He called the Bible the world's only honest book. What did he mean by this phrase? In his opinion, the Bible is the world's only honest book. What I believe he means is the Bible records all the range of emotions that we can experience, the goods and the less goods. David is completely honest when he writes these words. He reveals his hatred for God's enemies. He lays bare his feelings in an honest way. David could write words less harsh and less raw and less brutal. He could pretend that those words aren't in his heart. He could pretend that they're not really there. He could fool himself by not acknowledging these words. But he wouldn't be able to fool God. The God whom he says knows his every thought even before he has it. Can we, as Christians, can we have these thoughts? Can we have real hatred towards God's enemies? I think if we're honest, we can. We might not use words as rough or as raw as what's recorded in Psalm 139, but I believe they can be in our hearts. Who of us this morning honestly could say they've never had ill feeling towards someone? Could we, in complete honesty, say that we've never wanted somebody who's done us wrong to suffer 
a consequence. We might use less emotive language and we might dress it up, maybe not as harsh as that. You might have heard taking down a peg or two, or we might say, oh, I hope they get what's coming to them. But if we're honest, we want something unpleasant to happen to them. Secondly, these challenging and difficult words, David's words seem to be a desire for justice. He asks God to deal with the wicked. He wants justice to be done. And I believe this desire for justice is in all of us, and it starts at an early age. Perhaps you can think of a child, maybe your own child, or a child that you've worked with or come across, and if you had a pound for every time you heard, that's not fair, you would have a whole lot of pounds. Children say it quite frequently, whether they're primary school children or whether it's a teenager, that's not fair. You might say it in a petulant way, it might be said in a way that causes you to want to pull your hair out, but their call at heart is one for them to be treated fairly, to be treated the same as every way, everyone else, and to be treated in a just way. We can think of turning on our news, we don't have to think very long in, in our country, that the news is often filled with calls for justice. So I was preparing this, I discovered it was to the second anniversary of the Grenfell tragedy had just passed. People are seeking justice. 96 football fans went to an FA Cup semi-final match and sadly they never returned home and their loved ones have spent the past 30 years seeking justice. Where does this idea of justice come from? It's in all of our hearts. Where does it come from? I believe it comes from God, because God is a God of justice, a God of mercy, and a just God. We can look around, we don't even have to turn the TV on, we can think of our own lives and the workplace or friends that we have, we can see justice everywhere we turn. But as Christians, we can be encouraged, we can be assured that one day Jesus will return and put the world to rights. At the end time, Jesus will bring order back to a chaotic world and grant justice in an unjust world. And finally, David is not our ultimate example. Jesus Christ is our ultimate example. We don't look to David or we shouldn't look to David as our guide to how to live righteously. He was as flawed and sinful as each one of us who are here today. No, we should be looking to Jesus Christ as our guide to righteous living. He is perfect and sinless, the complete opposite of each of us. And what does, God, what does Jesus teach us? about our enemies. He teaches us to love our enemies. Think for a moment of that thought. Can you imagine you're there listening to Jesus preaching and teaching what we now call the Sermon on the Mount? Can you think what it would be like to hear those words, love your enemy? Imagine hearing that for the first time. How staggering. I think if I was there, my jaw would be hitting the ground. There's no way you could do that. Surely love your enemies, not to seek revenge on them or to hope for their downfall, but to love them and not only to love them, but also to pray for those people. Can it be done? You could be sitting there this morning 
and thinking that question, can it actually be done? You might also be thinking, well, Jesus Christ taught these words. Did he actually live those words out? Did he fail to carry those words out? And the answer is no, because as Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he uttered these words, which when you think about it, is completely staggering. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus Christ, he's hanging on the cross. He's gasping for oxygen. His back has been brutalized and bloodied. And as he's hanging there, gasping, what is he calling out for? He's calling out in his unspeakable agony. He prays for his enemies. He loves them so much. He could have called out to God. He could have called out to his father for vengeance and for retribution. And it would have been granted. He prayed, however, for their forgiveness. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. How incredible is that? Sometimes I often think we hear these words so often, they kind of lose their impact on us. But Jesus was hurting physically. He was hurting mentally and emotionally. His thoughts aren't on himself. His thoughts were for his enemies. But that's Jesus, you might be sitting thinking here. I'm standing thinking the same. That's Jesus Christ, you might think. I mean, can we really be expected to follow Jesus' example, to love our enemies and not only to love them and to pray for them? I stand up here in front of you this morning a failure because in my past people have hurt me. They haven't physically hurt me, but they've hurt me or they've harmed me in a particular way. And my tendency is not to pray for them and it's not to love them. My tendency is to hurt them and to ignore, or not to hurt them, sorry. My tendency is to ignore them. But that's not what Jesus would want us to do. He wants us to pray when it hurts us to do so. R.T. Kendall wrote a book which is called The Sermon on the Mount. I would encourage you to go to the library and to take it out, but it's sitting in my lounge. I've had it for five months and I'm halfway through it. It might be finished sometime this year. But if you do, if I do leave it back and if you do want a really good, challenging book to read, I'd encourage you to read that book, The Sermon on the Mount. And he tells a story, he wrote a story which just had me absolutely flabbergasted. He started telling in a chapter about someone as he was preaching in a congregation, his own congregation, there was someone who was sitting there that morning who had hurt somebody who was also in the congregation. R.T. Kendall doesn't say how the person was hurt, but an innocent person had been hurt by this other person. So Kendall was leading the service and he felt that Jesus Christ was challenging him there and then to pray for the person who had caused this hurt. And R.T. Kendall writes, he struggled to do so. And Jesus Christ challenged him again. And this time he prayed for that particular person, but he acknowledges he only did it half-heartedly. And again and again, Jesus challenged him to pray, to pray wholeheartedly, to pray like he meant it. And so R.T. Kendall did so. He added this person who had caused the hurt, he added this person to his regular prayer schedule. Do you know, truly that's only the edited part of the story. It is even more staggering than what I've reported to you, what I've said to you. How do you react when you hear this story I've just told you? 
do you want to know what my honest reaction was when I read it? I read the story, I closed the book up, put it down on the sofa, and I didn't read it for another two or three weeks. I was burying my head in the sand. Why did I do that? Why did I react? I closed the book up and put it down and didn't go near it for a while. There was two reasons. Because the first one was I felt I couldn't do it. Really? Pray for somebody who has hurt you? No way I could do that. And the second way was because I knew that Kendall was right. And I didn't want to hear of it. That's what Jesus would want us to do. That's what Jesus meant when he tells us to pray for our enemies. Is it easy? Not even slightly. I'd be a fool if I stood up here this morning and said it's easy to pray for somebody who has hurt you or harmed you. I feel at it time and time again. John Calvin, not our John Calvin, our jo- not our John Calvin. John Calvin said that it's exceedingly difficult to do. Another person writes that praying for your enemies is the very highest summit of self-control. Why is it so difficult to pray for somebody and pray wholeheartedly and pray for them consistently, people who have hurt us or who are our enemies? Kendall writes that it goes utterly against the flesh. It's difficult. It's so, so difficult. But why do we do so or why, do, why are we challenged to do so? Because Jesus Christ has commanded us to preach and to pray for our enemies. Leave you with how R.T. Kendall finished that really challenging chapter. He said that each one of us are sinners. But each one of us who are Christians, each one of us has been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Every one of us, truly, we deserved punishment. And yet Jesus Christ's death on the cross has set us free. So Kendall writes that we should pass on to others what Jesus has done to us, letting them off the hook as he wrote. Challenging, absolutely difficult, you bet. And yet I pray that God would give each one of us the grace and the heart to do so, to pray for our enemies. Let us pray. Father, we we thank you that your holy word is the world's only honest book. Lord, we can get so much from it. We can be uplifted by it. We can be encouraged by it. We, We can hold on to thoughts, but there's also challenging parts, words that seem out of kilter, which seem strong and rough. Yet, Lord God, they're there for a reason. They're there because it is honesty. Lord, help us to be honest. Help us not to push our emotions deep down and bury them or bury our head in the sand, Lord. You, your son has taught each one of us to pray for our enemies. Lord, we acknowledge it is so difficult and it is so challenging to do so. But Lord, help us to be encouraged. Help us to do so, to pray for those who maybe don't even ask for forgiveness or, or seek our forgiveness. And they might never, ever, ever say sorry to us, Lord. But I, we pray for those people, Lord. Encourage us to do so. Lord, I pray this in your most wonderful name. Amen. As we close our service, we're going to stand and sing praises to our great Redeemer. We'll stand and sing praises.